Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Entitled, Who is God? How the Son Transforms Us from Romans 5, 1 through 5. So we are in a series of we're in a series of lessons about uh, how God transform, transforms us, right? So this year for Reach is the year of transformation. So we've been looking at how God uh, He takes a broken person and He transforms them into a holy person, right? And so the process is really simple, right? We started out looking at this in Romans chapter twelve. The process is simple. The first thing that I do is I lay myself on the altar and say, I am not in control. We acknowledge that God is in control and that we, we, we are not. Okay, in the process of doing that over and over again every day, the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, he, he describes that as being a living sacrifice. And the problem with a living sacrifice is that it's always crawling off the altar. Right? So there's a process of us daily dying to ourselves, just like Jesus did, and living a life as best we can in a godly way. And in the process of doing that, number one, our mind is transformed, changes the way we think, and number two, the most, I would say the most important thing, but the incredibly important thing, especially at the age that we are all in right now, that we would know God's will, right? What is God's will for my life? Being a living sacrifice. And as we are, as we die every day, he is glorified, he transforms our mind, and we know his will. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal, right? So we started out by looking at why we need to be changed, what that looks like, why we're broken. And then we're just, we just come off of a, a, a three-part series on biblical sex, right? The adjective, not the verb, about how God has made men and women differently. And uh, we each have a role to play. And God has made us both incredibly powerful, uh, incredibly, in incredibly powerful ways, within our own gender. I don't think that it's any mystery why our we live in a generation that is so determined to blur the lines about gender. Because God has uniquely equipped each of us to play out his story of salvation as we serve each other in, in, uh, in mutual submission. So tonight, we're, it's the first of a three-part series. We're going to look at how God changes us, specifically within each member of the Trinity, Right, so uh, if, if we understand who God is as best we can understand him, I want you to take as best of an understanding of God that you have. Okay, you guys have it in your mind? Okay, this is going to be really rough, Ethan. Okay, you ready? Everything that you know about God is so wrong. So wrong. You don't have the cranial capacity to understand what you don't even know. So if you think, okay, well, I'm sitting here at Reach. Okay, I'm, I'm listening to Philip talk. Okay, we just sang songs to Jesus. We've been doing this for a long time. Okay, I know how this service goes. Okay, I've got this figured out, right? God, is, God does this X, Y, and Z. He's this type of a, of a person. I want you to take whatever you think that you know about God, and I want you to just throw that out the window for a minute. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to acknowledge you have no idea what you're talking about. None. Zero. There is a, it's interesting as I've learned about the, the church fathers and first, the first century church and the first generations of our forefathers, our ancestors in the faith, and the debates that they had back and forth about who God was and and what he was. There was a generation of people that began to preach that somehow the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were like a pantheon of gods, just like the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians had, that you had God the Father and God the Son, who was a byproduct of the Holy Spirit who had sex with a woman. Now he's a demigod. And they started to mix these the pagan religions into Christianity. You had other people that began to say that Jesus was just a human being, that he just had sort of an extra sensitivity to spiritual things and so that's why he was so significant and you had other people who began to preach that that well there really wasn't a son he was just kind of a regular person 
and the Spirit came down, and they and it had a and he had an inappropriate relationship with Mary, and somehow Jesus was the byproduct. And there's all these mixed messages. But one thing has never changed in the thousands of years that 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 God's story has unfolded. One thing has not changed. No matter how much we understand, no matter how little we understand, the one thing we can always take away is that, number one, God made you on purpose. And number two, he loves you so incredibly much that he has done everything he can so that you could understand how much he loves you. As small as our minds are, as ill-equipped as we are, he has done everything he can to reveal himself to us and to put on display his love. So we're going to look tonight at how the Son, Jesus, how he loves us. See, we, as, I have, as I've grown in my faith and as I, as I have learned more about what God's Word says about creation, it was a mind-blowing thing for me to read John chapter 1. I don't know if you all have ever taken the time to read the first chapter of the epistle of John. John was Jesus' best friend, right? He, the, the gospel of John. He, uh, he loved Jesus, and Jesus loved him back. And so John, if you remember, John began to write, he began to describe who Jesus was, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was made without him and everything that was made was made through him Jesus was the one who created the world the reason we have flesh and bones is because we bear this part of his image Jesus is flesh and bones he always has been consider this for a second Jesus never had a starting point if that doesn't if that doesn't make your eyebrows go up I don't know what will like wait a minute so he was born but he always has been that I don't understand that we're gonna look specifically at how Jesus how he transforms us turn with your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5 so this let me give you the setup here for Romans chapter 5 so the book of Romans uh, as we talked about this before the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul right he writes to the church at Rome he has not been to Rome yet when he writes this letter. And there's all kinds of things going on in Rome where you have the old school Jews who are trying to tell people that they've got to live according to the old law, the Jewish law, in order to be Christians. Doing things like the men need to be circumcised before they can actually believe in Jesus, before they can be Christians. The women have to do what, it, what the Old Testament law says that they have to do by how they weigh their hair and the things that they, things that they wear on their, on their bodies. But Paul begins to describe, he says, no, this has always been about faith. It's always been about faith. The justifying reality of God and how he loves us has always been about faith. There has never been a time in history where faith has not been the, the key cornerstone of God's interaction with us. Never. It's always been about faith. In fact, in chapter 4, Paul tells, tells them, he says, Don't you realize that Abraham was called righteous before, he even, before the law was even written? 430 years before any of the law was written, Abraham was called right and just before God because of his faith it's always been about faith so then he begins to to describe what has happened because of Jesus because of Jesus's sacrifice right we have this we have this idea we, we know the the John 3 16 right for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life right we get caught up in the for God so loved the world and we forget that it's actually for God so loved Tucker for God so loved Philip, for God so loved Morgan. Specifically, when it says, for God so loved the world, he really says, for God so loved Mandy, for God so loved Taylor and Maddie, all of you individually. We get lost in the, in the macro understanding of God loved the world. It's like, okay, that's great that God loved everybody, but I'm nothing special. But what I'm here to tell you tonight is that you are. You are special. And God has laid out a divine plan for you in your life. Read these verses with me, then we're going to go back and we're going to take them apart, okay? Starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first five, verse, first five verses of Romans. 
It says, therefore, since we have declared, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with the God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our affliction because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Check this out. The first thing I want you to see is that peace, is that because of Jesus, we have peace in a conflict-driven world. Okay, so the first word, therefore, the first thing that you got to ask yourself when you see the word therefore is what? What is it there for? Right? So what is it there for? He's talking about, he's referring back to the previous chapters where he says, listen, faith has always been the driving thing. Abraham was counted faithful before the law existed, before he was circumcised, before he had Isaac, before he had Ishmael, before any of this stuff took place in his life. When, when Abraham was still an old man, married to an old barren woman, he was counted faithful. He was counted as a friend of God, other passages tell us, because he had faith in what God was going to do in his life. He says, therefore, because of this history, because of our ancestry in the faith, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the thing about it. This peace is not about security in our worldly relationships. It's not about having peace like I'm going to, I'm going to be, be living a tranquil life. Like, okay, if I trust Jesus, all my stuff's going to be taken care of. I don't have to worry about any, any bad stuff happening to me. I'm just going to be good. What he's referring to is he says, because he's talking about God's relationship with us specifically. So that means that he says, because of these things, therefore, we have been declared righteous. Now, what's the thing about this is that we have not been declared righteous because we say it so, or because the Bible says it so, because God says it so. Think about that. The guy who writes the rules says that you are declared righteous, not by anything that you've done, but by faith. He says, we've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, you know what? All these external factors about the world, we live in a sinful, fallen world, right? That means that we live in a, in a, in a constant state of agitation. The world is churning. The Apostle Paul describes it that, that the world groans under the weight of sin. That means that there's going to be active trials in your life because you do stupid things. Other people do stupid things and they hurt you and you hurt yourself. There will be things that will happen, bad things that will happen to you, not because anybody wants to hurt you or because you're being dumb, but simply because people are dumb and things happen. But what he's saying is that we have peace with God. That means that when we were sinners, when we were corrupt, when we had no faith, when we were, we were proud and we were arrogant and we would shake our fist at God and we would demand answers about why this is this way or why this is that way. When we stood there in our own arrogance and we said, how could you do this to me for this whatever reason? You fill in the blank. Even in that state, it says that Christ died for us and he loves us. He says, therefore, because it's always been about faith, the moment that you said, I believe. Whether you felt like you were clean or not, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, that means that God Almighty declared you righteous. That means that no matter what crap you did today, no matter what you did yesterday, the day before, or what you're gonna do, do tomorrow, or what you're gonna do the next day, when you said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I will dedicate my life to him as hard as that might be, God Almighty said you're righteous. Here's the thing, is that righteousness has nothing to do with how you feel. You being right with God, you having peace with God has nothing to do with how you feel. The truth doesn't care about your feelings. God says you are made righteous if you put your faith in Jesus. Now you tell me, Phil, well, why, why, am I, why does life suck right now? Why, why are things so difficult for me? Because it's just one thing after another, after another, after another, and I can't seem to get ahead, and I just don't understand. You said that there's peace, but there's not peace here. You've got to understand that this is 
peace with God. That means that the largest thing that you have to worry about, your relationship with God, is taken care of. It's done. It's finished. To tell us die, in the words of Jesus, it is finished. He says, because it's always been about faith, there has never been a point in history, ever, in the, in the history of human beings, that doing things has made you right with God. Never. Never. It has always been this way. Anything that you think that you understand about how God needs you to do something to make this right, or there needs to be something to make this right, you, do, you don't possess the power to pay or to justify yourself from your sin. No matter how far you think that you can go, no matter how many good things you think you can do, you can't do it. He says, because of Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. It's true because God declared it to be true. This is like if you have, for instance, you have a war, right? You have two, you've got two armies that are, that are fighting with each other. You have the dominant army, which would represent God, and you have the piddly little ragtag group of guerrilla warriors. This is you. And the prince of the other kingdom comes to you and he says, here's a treaty. I've already paid for everything. You just have to join our side. From that moment on, that conflict is over. Never to be considered again. But here's the thing, though, is that Jesus is the vehicle that makes this possible. See, Abraham, the promise that God gave Abraham pointed to what God would do in Jesus. That's the whole point of the law, was to tell us that we were broken and to point to this point in history. Remember, when God looks at time, he doesn't look at, he doesn't look at things chronologically like we do. We see yesterday, today, and we hope for what's going to happen tomorrow. But God sees everything in its, in its entirety, right? We see time as in a timeline, a beginning and an end. God doesn't see time that way because God is not ignorant of anything. He is omniscient. He knows everything, okay? So that means that God steps back and he sees all of time. He sees everybody's individual timeline woven together in a giant tapestry. It's like a big Afghan blanket that's, that's, that's knitted together. You guys ever see those on your grandma's couch laid on the back, right? That's how God sees time. He sees everybody together. And so when he steps back and he looks at you, he doesn't see Philip at 27 years old drinking heavily and not, not respecting his family and not respecting his God or his reputation. He sees Philip as a redeemed person a son of heaven. The book of Hebrews says, because of these things, we can boldly walk into the throne room of grace. You see, to somebody who is a, who is a sinner who has not been redeemed, who doesn't know, have a relationship with God, that doesn't have this declaration of peace, this treaty, the throne room of God is a very dangerous, scary place. Because there's no hope for you. But to a child of heaven, though, the throne room is a completely different place. I don't know if you guys have ever have ever done this when you were a little kid, would you, if, if you ever went to see your dad at work, right? So I, I remember this when I, was, when I was a little kid, right? Taylor would never go see his dad at work. He would go to the principal's office, but he'd never go to his... But here's the picture I want you to think about. Because of this peace treaty, because of your relationship with God and how, how everything's been taken care of, I remember when I was a kid, my dad, you know, they, dads have all kinds of cool stuff in their office. They've got knickknacks and different things you can play with. My dad had this plastic bugle that I would play with all the time. Actually, it was a trumpet. And I'd go in there and I would annoy everybody in the office because I'd go from office to office playing it, just being annoying. It's an annoying little kid. But here's the thing, is that for a child of heaven, to walk into the throne room is like going into daddy's office. That same feeling that you had, yeah, this is a place where business is conducted and serious things happen, right? And you have, you have all kinds of big things that go on for everybody else, but for you, you're the princess. You're the prince. You, you all don't understand, this is my dad's office. 
and I can be here as long as I want. See, to a child of heaven, God's throne room is not a place of scary judgment. It's a place where we get to go see Abba, our daddy, our father. Jesus is the vehicle that made this possible. We look back and see what God has done. Paul's making a point here that we know that we're secure in this piece because we can look back at what God did in Abraham and we can look forward with confidence knowing that no matter what we did, no matter what we are doing, we have peace. We're safe. Think about this. Say, think, think about, I was, as, I was, as, I was, as I was writing this and thinking about what, what this would be like, Satan loves to try to question what God says and what God's motives were, right? You guys remember what the first temptation was? What did Satan say? Did God really say that? God didn't say it. He's trying to, he's trying to keep something from you. So what does Satan do to you every day? He does this to me every day. God is so not happy with you right now. What are you doing? Roy is like, hand up. It's like, you are so bad at this. God is so mad at you. Oh my goodness, if he, he's, you know what, he's watching you right now. He's watching you do this thing, and oh, there you go again. You did it again. You know what, God is just, he is so angry right now. He's like, they're doing it again. But here's the thing. This verse directly contradicts that. Guess what? When God looks at you in the state that you're in right now, but in an unredeemed body, in an unredeemed life, meaning you, don't have, you haven't been perfected, what that means is that when God sees you, he's got one expectation. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. Now guess what? Before you even place your faith in Jesus, he loved you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. He loved you then. He loves you now. You have peace with him then. You have peace with him now. There's nothing that changes. But Satan loves to try to convince you that something's not. That, that somehow God's not, not happy with you and he's going to come in here with a big lightning bolt and he's just going to teach you a lesson. I thought about this. You guys ever seen those divers in the shark cages swimming with the great white sharks? Right? So as long as they're in the shark cage, are they safe? In, the <laughs> in theory, yes. Presumably. Depends on the engineer who designed the cage. Consider this. Consider this, right? All of the dangerous things that Satan tries to tell you that are out there, all of the things that God is mad about, they're all outside the cage. And Satan wants to convince you that there's no cage at all, that there's no protection, that there's no security, that there's no sanctification happening in your life, that you're not changing, you're just as bad as you've always been. There is nothing, God cannot use you at all because he is just so mad at you. Why are you so bad at this? But this, this verse doesn't say that. Paul says, because faith tells us otherwise, he says, we've been declared righteous by faith. Because of this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since God has declared peace between us, we should have bold confidence since we have joined his side of the war. This has been made possible through the Son, Jesus Christ, who has negotiated our terms of peace. This peace is not subject to our fear, uncertainty, or mistakes. It is secure because God has declared it to be so. We are not in conflict with God if we trust in Jesus. We're not. Hear me, Christian. Daughter of heaven, son of heaven, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When it says that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, sealed you with a promise that nothing can take you out of his hand, he means it. There are people in your life that say things that they don't mean. But if Jesus says something, he means it. Here's the second thing I want you to see, is that we have grace and hope through him. This is the other thing that Jesus provides. Not only does he give us peace, but he gives us grace and hope. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, we have also obtained access through him by faith 
into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's two things here about grace and hope that we get through him. In addition to the access to grace and peace, God gives us an unshakable hope. But we can't access that any other way except through Jesus. That's the hard thing for us is that we have to, we have to continually do something. We think we've got to continually produce something in order to stay in God, God's good graces. You've got, to, you've got to produce something, right? If you're not producing fruit, clearly you're not a child of God. If you are doing bad things, you're clearly not a child of God. If you're having doubts about God's power, you're, chilly, tr- tr- you're clearly not a, a uh, child of God. But my mouth isn't working. Sorry, I've got all these words going on inside my head. and I, It does keep you humble. Thank you, Ethan, it does. Oh, I appreciate that. But we have... <laughs> We have access, well, we've got access to this grace, and here's the thing about it, is that because we're secure, we have hope. That's not just like, hope is not just like a, like an expectation of maybe someday I'm going to be okay. It's like this wild Pollyanna idea that somehow I'm just, everything's going to be fine. Hope means that there's confidence. Hope means a confident expectation that this will happen. If I tell you that I hope the sun comes up tomorrow, do you believe me? You believe me because the sun will come up tomorrow. It happens every single time. I have a confident expectation that the sun will come up. I have hope that the sun will come up. That means that tomorrow is going to be a new day, whether I sleep or not. For some of us, that's a problem. But what's interesting to me is that he talks about this, how we have, we have obtained access through him by faith into this grace. A few years ago, um, when I was working for the United States House of Representatives, I, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. And um, this was really cool for me because I'm a little bit of a government nerd, at least I used to be until I got burned out on it. Um, but when you work in the United States Capitol, they give you this thing that hangs around your neck. It's called a staff badge. You can pretty much go wherever you want, and they won't ask you any questions. They'll just let you go wherever. And so um, it was kind of cool. So we, I was there for a work trip, and, and one of our, our staff ladies was going to take me on a tour of the Capitol. And uh, so we're working our way through, and we're going, walking through security. We don't have to go through metal detectors or anything like that. It's pretty awesome. And then we make it from the House side. The U.S. Capitol is separated. The House is on this side, and the Senate is on the other side. And so even though we had house staff badges, we were able to go wherever we wanted in the Capitol. And so we went over to the Senate side. And um, what's interesting to me is that at this point in my life, I was praying about, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Because my season of working for the government was coming to an end, and I was really wanting to get out of politics. And um, one of my ancestors is a guy named William Brewster. William Brewster was the guy who led the group of people on the Mayflower that came to America, okay? And so there are paintings of William Brewster all over the United States Capitol, which was kind of cool. So, like, there's the tourist stuff that you go through. You see the the rotunda and the Statuary Hall, all those things. But we go into the Senate side, right, because we have these badges. And and I walk past Elizabeth Warren, literally on her cell phone, ordering her lunch. Like, she's pacing in the hallway. I walk past her, like, that's Elizabeth Warren. I'm walking past Elizabeth Warren. She's ordering a sandwich, Right? And, and we walk past the Senate chambers, and there's, there's, these, there's these heavy wooden doors with, with wrought iron bars over the, over the windows. There's a little bitty window. And I look, and in the chamber of the Senate, only senators are allowed to go in there. The, I see James Lankford on the, di- on the dais chairing the meeting. As we're walking past, we're walking through these marble hallways. We go back into this room off the side of the Senate, and it's called the President's Room. And Abraham Lincoln built this room just to sign legislation. So it was built right after the Civil War, right? And um, up until that point, there wasn't a place for a president to actually sign bills after they were passed by Congress, other than the White House. So we walk into this room, right? And it's, this little, it's a little bitty room, probably about the size of a closet. Um, and they've decorated it. It was painted when, when uh, Lincoln built the room. It was painted as an homage to George Washington's cabinet. And so there's James Madison over here and Thomas Jefferson and all these other people, right? And on the ceiling, they're painted all these 
these, I think there are three pillars of government administration. And I look up and representing religion is a painting of William Brewster on the ceiling. I didn't know it existed. At that moment, the Lord said, buddy, you're exactly where I want you to be. Just be patient. But here's the thing. I could not have gotten into that room if I didn't have access. See, there's, there, there's this idea, this theme in Scripture that God's throne room is a place of those who belong to Him. This is a place of welcome. It's a place of joy. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of being able to go and to rest, to boldly come into the throne room of grace. We have access to all of these things through Jesus. That's the thing. It's like without Jesus, this doesn't happen. Without his, his interjection into our lives, this doesn't happen. We have VIP passes. Through the grace that God gives us because of Jesus, our hope or our confidence, it plays out as God begins to share his glory with us as his children. Here's the cool thing about this. Is that God's whole thing is that he could save you, he could be, get all the glory, everything could be great. He could totally do that if he wanted to, but he chose not to. Why? Because for him, he wants you to see his glory revealed in your life. He wants you to experience the ride with him. He wants you to see things unfold in your life and to do supernatural things. He wants you to see your life change. He wants you to look back and see, oh my goodness, I started way back there. And yet here I am. How is that possible? Only God. See, that's the process is that Jesus, he came, he came on purpose. He waited for 30 years. He died every single day, sweeping up wood shavings in the, in the cabinet shop so that you could share in the glory that God has for you. God is not a hog. He doesn't want to just take everything for himself. As he is glorified in your life, you share in his glory. Romans talks about that. The process is really simple, though. As we embrace his grace and we make a conscious decision to train our minds on what is true, our hope is confirmed in everyday moments of our lives. His hope gives us confidence and it gives us peace. And the peace is confirmed through his interaction, these little bitty moments, these little bitty battles, these little defeats, these little victories. God begins to play out his glory in us. That's the amazing thing about Jesus is that without him, none of this happens. God could come in and be like, okay, everybody's saved, we're good. We're fine. There are some people that believe that. Universalists. They believe that, oh, we know God's not, he's not a bad person. He's just going to save everybody. Life just kind of sucks right now. But that's not how this works. That's not how this works at all. Here's the third thing I want you to see. That he changes how we see our afflictions. And we rejoice in them as they come. So Paul, he describes this and, and how our, our hope is produced through embracing his grace. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Rejoice? What, what, why in the world would I do that? Why would I be excited and be rejoicing in my afflictions? Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. See, Paul's describing that hope is produced in a process. See, First we have hope, then first we have peace, then we have hope, and then we have, if, if that wasn't enough, God takes us on this journey, we start to work through affliction and endurance, proven character, and equals hope. See, here's the thing, is that we have a, we've got a false understanding of how hope works. We think it's like, okay, cool, well, I trusted Jesus, now I've got hope, awesome. What happens the next day? My family's still a mess. My relationships are still a mess. All the external parts of my life are the same. Wait a minute. What's different? We've talked about this analogy before. About a chair, right? Morgan, can I borrow this chair for a second? Okay. So if I sit in this chair, do you think it's going to hold me up? Haley says no. 
Thanks, Haley. I appreciate that. You sure that I, if I sit in this, it's going to be okay? Positive. I haven't messed with this chair at all. I mean, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and sit down if that's okay. You'll allow it. Adeline will allow it. Thanks, Addy. I can't. Are you sure this is going to hold me up? It works. It works. It holds me up. How can I be confident that this chair is going to hold me up? I just sit in it. But here's the truth. You've been sitting in chairs your entire life. When you were born, they put you in a chair. They did. I got to get this baby home. I got to put it in the chair and buckle it in the, in the car. Buckle it in the chair, right? And then you get home. And you get a little bit bigger, right? So now you can sit up on your own. Well, guess what? <laughs> going to put you in a chair again, right? Whether you like it or not, you're going to sit in this chair and you're going to like it, right? It's like, well, you're too small for a chair at the dining room table, and so we're going to go ahead and put you in a high chair. We're going to buckle you in so you can't get out, right? And then we're going to move up from there to a booster seat and then to a regular chair, right? You've been sitting in chairs your whole life. So when you walk into a room and there's a chair to sit on, you can tell if that's worth sitting in or not, can't you? Why? Because you have experience. You have confidence. You've got confidence because you know what it's like. You know what a good chair looks like. It's the same thing with God. Your faith and your confidence is built over time. Right? And we go through these things. That's why... That's why we can be excited about affliction. That's why we can be excited about challenges. That's why we can be excited about the things that are happening in our life that we don't, that don't make us feel good because in the end it produces hope. Because God says over and over and over again that I will show up. What's interesting to me is that this word rejoice, it actually means to boast, to celebrate, or to excessively celebrate. I mean, if I told you Landry, if I said, I've got a million dollars for you, would you be excited about that? Of course you would, right? Would you, would you be uh, excessively celebrating? As much, well, yeah, okay. I'll give you, it's Landry. Okay, I got you, right? He, he would be, Ethan would probably excessively be celebrating, right? I mean, whatever. It's a metaphor, Ethan. It's a metaphor. Yes. Okay, Johnny would be excessively celebrating. Thank you, Johnny. I appreciate that. Excessively celebrating. It's like, have you ever seen those people who win the lottery or, they, or somebody who wins, wins something? They're like, <laughs> they're like, oh my, God, I, oh my goodness, I did it. I won, I won, I won. And they get so pumped about it. When was the last time you were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I got a flat tire on the way to work. Oh my goodness, I got this bill and my, my bank account literally has no money in it. Can you believe that? Are you so excited for me? You see where I'm going with this? It's like, I can't believe, I can't believe that God would let me get a flat tire on the way to work. I can't believe that I would lose my job. Oh, this is great. Awesome. I can't, I can't believe that nobody's coming to reach. This is great. Consider this. To the, to the person who is mature, to the believer who is mature, they understand that these things that come to us are opportunities for God to shine his glory through us into the dark world. If God told you, hey, you know what? I want to do a divine miracle in someone's life and I want you to deliver the mail for me. Would you be up for that? Would you be like, oh, yes. Oh, yes, let's do it. I'm in. Excessively celebrating our trials. Counting it all joy. Here's the things that are displayed in our trials, right? Here's just a couple things. Number one, God's glory. God's glory is displayed when we have trials because he's, people watch us go through incredibly difficult things. Number two, our peace with him through Christ is magnified. People say, man, you're going through a really hard time. Why are, you so, why are you so chill right now? Well, it's because, I mean, I'm good with God, so why would I be scared about anything else? 
His peace is magnified. Every time we suffer, number three, every time we suffer, it's a reminder that God loves us. In Proverbs 3, the, uh, King Solomon's writing, and he says, don't despise the disciplining, disciplining of the Lord because the one who the Lord loves, he disciplines. Every time you go through a trial, I want you to say in your mind, God loves me because God is not content for me to stay the same. Because where you are right now cannot be compared to where you will be in the future. Don't be satisfied with where you are. Number four, it establishes our security and our hope. Every time you go through a trial, when things get shaky, and you turn around and you notice that that thing doesn't move, God's hope and security and the peace doesn't change. Never. No matter how shaky your life is, it never changes. Never. No matter how far away you get, it never changes. It's right there. No matter how far you wander, no matter how deep you get in, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how hard you think it might be to come back, it is always there. And here's the other thing is that these trials that come along, we're not just, you know, we're not just gluttons for punishment. We're not people who enjoy pain. But the truth is that we, we enjoy it, we celebrate it because of what comes on the backside the hope, the experience that one day God's going to let me do something incredible. And guess what? One day means today. It doesn't mean when I've got my PhD or when I've got my bachelor's degree or when I've got the job or when I've got all of these things lined up that one day God's going to use me to do big things. Guess what? God wants you to do big things right now. If, if your development literally changes nothing professionally, like the things that you can add to your life, if God does everything, what makes you think that you've got to accomplish something for God to be able to use you? You bring nothing to the table. I bring nothing to the table. The truth is that God does it all. And as God works through you, he does divine things. And he puts his glory on display. And guess what? Every time you have that opportunity, it should be a, it should be a reason for crazy, excessive celebration. But the thing about it, The Christian life is built on one thing. It's the idea that, that it will produce change in us, right? You can, do, you can pursue any religion in the world, any religion in the world you want, but none of them are like this. None of them are. Because God, in all the other religions, you've got to do what you can to get to him. You've got to appease him. But the truth about Christianity is that God loved us so much that he came down and pursued us. The whole Christian life is built on changing us. And here's the thing is if you don't want to change, if you're like, you know what, that's great. I'll take the grace piece. That's awesome. Cool. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate that. But you don't actually want to celebrate the trials. You don't actually want to be all in. You don't want to be a living sacrifice. That says more about you than it does about God. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Number four is that this hope, this hope of transformation will always pay off because the Holy Spirit has poured out his love on us so that we know it's true. Look at verse 5. It says this. It says, This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the Holy Spirit, God gives us the Holy Spirit. So whenever you trust in Jesus, right, you have security. You've got peace with him. He takes you through this process of endurance, celebrating affliction when it comes. But all, all along the way, God's given you a down payment to know that what he says is true. That down payment is the Holy Spirit. He says that in, in, in the book of John. In John 17, Jesus says, I've got to go. But when I go, though, I'm going to send the comforter. And the comforter is going to come and he's going to teach you all these things. So as you're navigating these trials, these afflictions, all these things, as you're learning about God's grace and the security that comes with it, the Holy Spirit is right there with you all the time. Here's something that blew my mind. I read this. And actually, look at this. It says, this hope will not disappoint us. Oh, by the way, when it says it won't disappoint us, if you've experienced the hope, it really means that. It won't disappoint you. I'm telling you by experience. I digress. Anyway, but he says, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Poured out. This is interesting, right? 
We know that God loves us, right? God is love. Like, okay, well, I learned that in, the, in kindergarten. But I don't, I don't think that you understand. I didn't understand the, the fullness of that. Okay, when, it's, when it says here, it says here in verse 5 that God's, that because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Greek there means it wasn't just poured out. It was gushing. Gushing. God loves you to the point to where he doesn't just be like, hey, love you. Like, it's like, I love you. Like, it is, it's everything. He doesn't do things halfway. He's like, you know what, Jonathan, I love you. Not just with words, but like, I'm going to make this real. Like, I am obsessed. God is to the point of being obsessed. Not in an appropriate way, but truly in an unrelenting way reckless way. He loves you. So all this talk about security, all this talk about hope, all this, all this talk about all of these things that we can have confidence in, all of it comes from this one thing, this one deep truth that God loves you, not to the point of just, oh yeah, I kind of feel good when you're around. Like, I love you. I cannot stand the thought of being separate from you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sacrifice myself just so I have the opportunity. And if you tell me no, I will be devastated, but I have to try. He gushes for you. If that wasn't enough, God has the most incredibly massive reasons he loves you and all of the crap that you've done in your life it doesn't matter because he wants you to be right he wants you to be made whole he wants you to go through this process of transformation Jesus the word became flesh he literally submitted himself he laid down his robe and set it on, the, on, the, on the, his throne. He took off his crown and set down his royal scepter. He got on his hands and knees and he scrubbed the floor. Why? Because he wants to be the, all that. He wants to be the big guy. He wants to be the one that everybody praises. He does it because he loves you. And in the process, he is glorified. Imagine how incredible that is. He's made you women. He's made you an easer. Men, he has made you a shepherd. He has made you powerful. He has made you to do things incredibly. I can't. Guys, this transformation is real. It's not just something that we, that we talk about as a metaphor or just kind of a thing that makes us feel better about ourselves. This is real. And I'm telling you that not because the book says it, because I've seen it in my life. Don't believe that who you are today is enough. Because God has all kinds of things that he wants for you. And the only, thing that can, the only person that can deny you of what God wants for you is you. This hope is real and it's tangible. And I think it's interesting that Jesus took care of security first. He took care of security, so that's already off the table. So it's not about, okay, you got to do these things, all that stuff. It's about, he takes that and he, and he lays it aside. He's laid all of this aside so that we can share in his glory and his redemption. There's one thing I want to show you. So talking about confidence. So if you've, have you guys ever seen a little kid at the pool before, Right? They got their little floaties on, little chubby, chubby fingers, right? They get up to the, they get up to the, the edge of the pool, and Dad's like, "Come on, jump in, just try this. Just come on, it's so much fun. Get in the water." And they're like, "Oh no, Dad, I don't know, I don't know." And so finally they do it. And they're like, "Hey, that wasn't that bad. Awesome." So this is my daughter Ava. 
So this is about two minutes after Ava realized that if she dove on the diving board, she could swim to the side of the pool. Like two minutes after, right? She realizes, hey, Dad, I don't need my floaties anymore. Hey, Dad, I can, this is pretty awesome. And she wasn't like walking up to the diving board like, hop off. Like, you could see she is totally committed. Totally committed. This is one of my favorite pictures of Ava. She has always been a pistol. She's got a little Minnie Mouse goggles on. Oh, my goodness. I want you to think about this picture. Okay? God's limitless power to change us. Jesus did all of this so that you can approach life like this. This is a picture. No fear, confidence, security. Daddy's right there. And guess what? You can tell by my, my face, I am loving every second of this. Right? Know that God's watching. And he's not standing there with a lightning bolt ready to throw it down, to, to whip you across the face with it. He, he loves you so much. Jesus paid the incredible price of laying everything down so that you could be made right with him. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit does this and how the Father does this. I want you to know God has incredible things in store for you if you will let go and let him take control and be a living sacrifice, just like he was. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, the pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church right here at the corner of 111th and Mingo. For more information, you can check out our website, reachtulsa.org, or you can also connect with us on social media and Instagram by searching for at reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Come feel your people. With revival sound, oh, rain down your fire.